Let's return this morning with Jesus to the Feast of Dedication in John chapter 10. John chapter 10 this morning. The time of year is winter. Jesus will be crucified at Passover the following spring. Jesus has come frequently to Jerusalem throughout John's Gospel, and each time he has met with opposition. In John 2, the Jews were infuriated when he cleansed the temple and claimed to be able to raise it again in three days. In John 5, Jesus healed a man at the pool of Bethesda. The Jews persecuted Jesus and actively sought to kill him. In John 7, Jesus attended the Feast of Tabernacles and narrowly avoided arrest. In John 8, Jesus accused the Jews of trying to kill him at the same feast. In John 9, the Jews were livid with Jesus for healing a man who was born blind. And our text in John 10 leads off with yet another attempt on the life of Jesus. Look at verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Now, within a few months, Jesus will return to Jerusalem where he will mount a donkey and ride up to the city gates. We call this the triumphal entry, but it's often misunderstood. It's often preached as if the fickle Jerusalem Jews just celebrated their king at the beginning of the week and then crucified him by the end of the week. That's actually not what happened. Every Passover, streams of pilgrims would make their way up to Jerusalem from various places all around the Mediterranean, many of them coming from Galilee. And it seems there was a group of these pilgrims, probably mostly Galilean pilgrims, who did indeed cast their cloaks down on the road before him. They took palm branches and put those down on the road before him also. And Jesus just sort of jostled his way through the crowd up to the city gate. But Jerusalem, the city, did not triumphantly embrace Jesus as the rightful king. Jesus met with fierce opposition from the moment he passed into the city. In fact, his final week was full of intense discussion over his true identity. But that discussion was not aimed at embracing Jesus as the true Christ. It was actually designed to secure a guilty verdict and hang him on a cross. Now, it's John's Gospel that really clues us in to this hostility that has been building against Jesus for a very long time. So again, don't, don't read the cross narrative as a surprising turn of events following the triumphal entry. That's not what happened. Quite the opposite. The cross is actually the culmination of hostilities that ran right through the duration of Jesus' ministry. So with that in mind, let's read from verse 31 through to the end of the chapter. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Now, what do you think about this answer? Verse 34, Jesus answered them, 
Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he, God, called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Well, clearly, Jesus' life was in danger long before he rode his donkey up to the city gates. We are told in verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. This is likely the third attempt to stone Jesus in Jerusalem. In John 5 and verse 18, following the healing of the man at Bethesda, we're told that the Jews eagerly sought to kill him. Well, stoning was a standard means of execution among the Jews. So this likely refers to an earlier stoning attempt. Then in John 8, Jesus claimed, Before Abraham was, I am. And immediately the Jews just picked up their stones to hurl at him. So verse 31 then is a third stoning attempt. And in all three instances, Jesus claimed to be one with God. And this claim provoked attempts on his life. Now, of course, stoning was a legal means of execution if it followed a proper judicial sentence obtained in a proper court of law. But in no case do we read of a proper trial. These stoning attempts were provoked by lynch mobs. Now, the Jews, for their part, were likely exacerbated by having to put up with their Roman overlords. The prospect of having to put Jesus through a Roman trial, together with the real possibility of a Roman acquittal, was not a pleasant prospect. The Romans were not all that interested in the minutia of Jewish law. They were typically indifferent to charges of blasphemy brought up in the context of non-Roman religions. So that being the case, the Jews are probably thinking, you know what, if we're going to deal with this guy, probably better just take it in their own hands and just deal with this decisively and immediately just be done with this troublesome Galilean. But whatever the case, there is no clear judicial procedure. Now in this situation, unlike the situation back in John chapter 8, verse 59, Jesus must have perceived that there was no immediate threat that was actually going to dispatch with him immediately. Uh, why that is, we can't say exactly, but apparently in chapter 8, Jesus fled immediately for fear of his life, but here Jesus remains and engages in dialogue. It's probably the case that Jesus had a sufficient number of friends and supporters in the crowd, and Jesus knew, okay, they want to kill me, but it's not very likely at this point, so he sticks around, doesn't flee, and he decides instead, I'm going to engage these people in conversation. And so, in verse 32, he puts a question to these individuals that would stone him. 
And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? Now, Jesus' question is really a brilliant exposure of a fault in the Jews' thinking. His question forces the Jews to deny that Jesus' good works link him to the Father. He wants them to deal with those works and deny that those works link him to the Father. That's what he's doing with this question. In other words, Jesus is forcing them to deny the evidence they've seen with their own eyes. That Jesus had done many good works is undeniable. In the previous chapter, he dramatically healed a man born blind. And the Jews knew it. That's why they had all these interrogations to figure out what exactly happened. And as we work through that chapter, we saw the Jews going to extraordinary lengths to deny the evidence that was right there in front of them, staring at them, eyes wide open. And through several interrogations, it became apparent that the Jews were only interested in condemning Jesus. Their minds are already made up. If anyone confesses him, cast him out of the synagogue. So Jesus understood, you Jews are going to ridiculous lengths to deny the evidence that's just staring at you. And that's precisely where he attacks. I imagine there are some in the crowd who are standing there who might have been on the fence about Jesus. Of course, he had supporters, but some are probably in the middle. And when Jesus asks a question to which the authorities have no good answer, that's going to pull people over to his side. I imagine there were some converts at this point. Well, how do the Jews then respond to this question from Jesus? Well, verse 33 reveals an attempt to sidestep the question of his works. The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself God. Now think about that. Ironically, their statement sounds like a tacit admission that Jesus had indeed performed a good work. He had indeed opened the eyes of a man born blind, but the Jews essentially said, well, we're not, sto- we're not stoning you for that, right? We're stoning you for blasphemy. Well, did they just admit he actually did the work? Did they actually admit he just did the work? Here's the problem. The, the Jews failed to acknowledge any connection between his work and his true identity. No, you can't put those two together. So they accuse him not of doing good works, but of blasphemy. And friends, this is an extremely serious charge. Look very carefully at the charge. You, being a man, make yourself God. And we have to be very careful in how we interpret this charge. And that's because the Jews were indeed speaking the truth. A mere mortal claiming to be God is blasphemy. If one of you claimed to be God, we would all condemn you of blasphemy. You would not stay in our church. All right? We wouldn't stone you, but we'd definitely kick you out of the church. All right? So where does our thinking go wrong? Well, at the risk of losing the flow of the passage, I do want to come back to it at the end of the sermon 
and their problem, and really elaborate in their thinking. But suffice it to say here that when John introduces the Incarnation, he actually reverses the Jews' assumptions. The Incarnation is not a matter of a man making himself out to be God. It's God making himself out to be man. In the beginning was the Word, right? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was God, and the Word, God, became flesh. It's really crucial that when we're dealing with Jews or Muslims that we maintain the right question. The question is not, can a man be God? The answer is no, that is indeed blasphemy. But what about this question? Can God become man? Can God add humanity to Himself? Humans cannot add deity to themselves. That is true. But can God add humanity to Himself? I suspect we all understand this. Yes, indeed He can. Now, we understand this so much, so much so that in fact what Jesus says next probably actually confuses us. Man can't be God, right? But God can become man. So why then does Jesus say in verses 34 through 36 this? Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, the scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? What is all that about? That is one of the more enigmatic things that Jesus ever said. What does he mean? Well, let's not read into the statement more than Jesus intended. First of all, Jesus is not actually arguing for the deity of human beings. Okay, let's be very clear about that. He's not arguing for the deity of human beings. And in fact, he's not even commenting on his own deity at this point. Not that he has any doubt about it. What Jesus is doing here is making a very quick argument to silence the blasphemy charge so he can return to a discussion of his works. That's what's going on here. So let me say that again. He's making a very quick argument to just silence that blasphemy charge so he can get the discussion back on track. That blasphemy charge came in verse 33. Right? You're blaspheming, but Jesus wants to have a discussion about his works. That was back there in verse 32. So how is he going to keep the discussion on track? That's what's happening here. So let me explain what's going on here. Have you ever had a protracted, heated argument with someone? I'm sure you all have at some point, right? And as the argument goes along, numerous points of disagreement emerge, and there's friction all over the place. And before you can answer one accusation, here comes a second and a third and a fourth, right? You know how that goes. And suddenly that whole argument just becomes really, really convoluted. And you're like, well, you know, what were we even talking about in the first place? I mean, how'd this whole thing begin? You ever had an argument like that? And it's like, this is just getting too much, right? So in the middle of all that, imagine yourself in that situation, you find yourself wanting to sort of get back to the main issue at hand and not get distracted by so many points of controversy. How do you get the argument back on track? All right? That's what's happening here. Jesus is just going to take a really quick jab 
at the Jews and remove that blasphemy charge, take it off the table, and get the discussion back on his works. And so to that end, he is going to pose a puzzle, a riddle, a conundrum for the Jews. He quotes Psalm 82 and verse 6. He's quoting from the Septuagint. In the psalm, get this, the people of Israel are called gods. In fact, twice in the psalm they're called gods. But when you hear that term gods, think lowercase g. Not God, but lowercase g, as it were. Of course, I didn't have the uppercase lowercase, but that, that's, that's the sense in which it's being used. So in the psalm, God, uppercase, accuses the gods, and I say that with some sarcasm, lowercase, of knowing nothing. You gods know nothing. Now, of course, God is not literally claiming the Israelites are deities. The context itself makes that clear. God is speaking sarcastically, and he has every right to do so. Right? The psalm uses the term gods, in much the same way that people in Europe, uh, European history were often called lords. Oh, you lords, you lords of the earth. If you were a member of the aristocracy, the upper class, you were called lord or lords. And of course, one of God's titles is lord. But when we call someone a lord, we don't mean by that that he's actually God. Actually, very often when we use this kind of terminology, there's an element of irony in it. Right? He calls someone a Lord, like whoever made you Lord God, or whoever made you Lord of the earth, right? We, we, we call someone a Lord when we know he's anything but, right? That's the irony in it. That's the sarcasm in it. So, neither Jesus nor the psalmist nor God are literally claiming that humans are true gods. But Jesus' point is that God himself actually called people gods. God himself called people gods. You and I call people lords, but we appreciate the sarcasm. So, that being said, Jesus is putting a little riddle to the Jews to really stump his opponents. The Jews took their scriptures extremely literally, right? We all know this. In the verse 35, the scripture cannot be broken. So here's a Jew, I interpret it very, very literally, it cannot be broken, so here's the riddle, if God called people gods, and every word is literally true, well, what are we going to do with that? Is God calling people gods? What are you going to do with that? That's a real riddle for the Jews. If God called people gods, then how can you accuse me of blasphemy for calling myself a son of God? I mean, God did that, right? That's all he's doing. He's just making a quick jab at the Jews to try to take the blasphemy charge off the table. He's actually just having some fun with them. right? When you get into Jesus' debates with people, it's just really fun because you know they don't have a chance. I would not want to argue with Jesus. All right, Just be quiet. When Jesus is talking, just everybody be quiet. All right, But Jesus is essentially saying, if God called people gods, of course with sarcasm, and yet to call someone a god is blasphemy, well, then God himself must be a blasphemer. But the Jews can't tolerate that. God can't possibly be a blasphemer, so what are we going to do? And if you're not going to call God a blasphemer, then you have no grounds for calling me a blasphemer. That's what Jesus just did. So effectively, what he's done is he's taken that blasphemy charge in the strictly literal sense of the term, 
and he's just taken it right off the table. All right, and possibly he's embarrassed the Jews with this riddle that they cannot solve. So the question then remains, is Jesus himself actually God? And one might think that Jesus' response could reduce his own status. I mean, God called other people God, so does that mean I'm not really true God? All right, It could be taken in that direction. So how would you know that Jesus is in fact the true God? Uppercase God, and not just another lowercase God. How would you know that? Well, again, keep the discussion on track. Let's make it all about the works. This whole riddle about the gods was designed to get the discussion back on track. Let's focus on my works. Verse 32, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? That's what Jesus wants to discuss. Let's talk about my works. Now, Jesus knows good and well the Jewish leadership is just tying themselves up in knots, trying to figure out the implications of his works and deny what's really going on here. And that's where he's just going to really now press the argument. He gets back on track. Look at verse 37. Here we are, back on track now. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. Fair enough. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So once again, Jesus appeals to the evidence that he wants the people to weigh. Look at my works. He does not expect the Jews will believe an ordinary man who just sort of walks in Jerusalem claiming to be God is in fact God. But what about the works? If Jesus does the works that God does, what other conclusion can you draw? Jesus and the Father are one. Now, of course, it is true that others before Jesus did mighty works. Think of Moses. Think of Elijah. But they do not assume to be one with God. What is it then that makes Jesus' works truly unique? Well, would you just consider three points? First of all, recall that Jesus performed certain works that did indeed point straight to His deity. We saw this one chapter earlier in chapter 9. If you recall, the opening of blind eyes was associated in the Old Testament with the coming of Yahweh's Christ. It was a miracle that was reserved for the performance of deity. Never happened in the Old Testament, but when you see this, you know that the Lord's Christ has come. Moses and Elijah never opened the eyes of the blind, but Jesus did. Secondly, Jesus never has to call on power from on high to perform a miracle. It's like he can just do a miracle at any time he wants. When you read through the account of Moses and Elijah, you get the distinct sense their power is coming from somewhere outside them. It's not like they can just pull off a miracle anytime they want. This is not so with Jesus. His power emerges from within. And then thirdly, just consider the extraordinary range and the variety of miracles that Jesus has performed. We were actually at this point very late into His ministry, and we have seen all kinds of awesome displays of power, many of them, of course, in the synoptics. He can heal any malady that He's confronted with. The blind... 
the lame, the deaf, the paralyzed, the crippled, the dead. I mean, whatever you throw at him, he has no trouble with it. He can multiply loaves and fish. He can cast out demons. He can walk on water. He can calm a storm. It's like he can just heal whoever comes to him and that power just never runs out. If you read Matthew's Gospel, Matthew makes it clear the problems get worse and worse. You have a demon-possessed man, and then you have a demon-possessed man who can't speak, and then you have a demon-possessed man who can't speak and can't see. And Jesus has no trouble with it. Just cast out the demon, heal the blindness, heal the, heal, heal the, heal the mutinous. No problem, whatever. So surely... If Jesus had performed this many miracles for so many people, can we just can we just pause our accusations of blasphemy long enough to maybe rethink his identity? I mean, how many more does he have to do? Right? How many more does he actually have to do? Surely, after he dramatically opened the eyes of man born blind, a miracle the blind man confessed that had never been done since the foundation of the world, surely we can we can pause long enough. Maybe put down our stones, right? And consider who Jesus truly is. But unfortunately, the Jews are too far gone in their rage against Jesus. So verse 39, again, they sought to arrest Him, but He escaped from their hands. And then verse 40 tells us what happened next. He went away across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there He remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. So Jesus' efforts in Jerusalem were not all in vain. Some at least saw what he did and said, hmm, there's more to this man. But again, Jesus avoided arrest once more. He leaves Jerusalem behind. But as I mentioned earlier in the sermon, he is going to return to Jerusalem on his donkey. But again, don't misinterpret the triumphal entry. John 12, which records the event, tells us the Jews are already conspiring to put Jesus to death. In fact, not only Jesus, but would you believe it? Not just Jesus, Lazarus also, whom he raises in John 11. we got to put even Lazarus to death. In the meantime, Jesus again ventures out here into the Judean wilderness to a place made famous by John the Baptist. And here people do embrace Him. Now, I want to conclude today with a little bit of application that may actually be a little bit controversial. In fact, I was a little bit distraught this week in thinking about the application of this whole sermon, and I went to a theologian who happens to be in the office next door to me, and I ran this past him, and he goes, that's good, you should write a journal article on it. And I said, okay, I'm gonna, then I'm gonna do this, okay? <laughs> but I, I, I really, I really wanna know why it is the Jewish leadership failed to understand the incarnation. Why, what are they, what are they missing? Why don't they understand Jesus? And I'm not trying to be sympathetic with them in the sense that I want to justify them. No, they were wrong. But I do want us to climb into their context a little bit and try to understand where where they go wrong. They refuse to embrace Jesus as God, and they rightly deserve condemnation. But it's possible that even believers in Jesus Christ can, I think, be misled by the same theology that misled the Jews. And that's a danger that I really want to help our church avoid. 
I'm not calling us unbelievers, but we can slip into the same theology that misled the Jews. Many of the Jewish leaders were Pharisees. And that term comes from the Aramaic term for, does anyone know what that term means? In Aramaic, it means separatist. It's the word for separatist. The Pharisees were the separatists of their day. So clearly, there must be a kind of false separatism. If, in fact, the Pharisees are acting like separatists. If, in fact, they're separatists, there's got to be a false separatism if the Pharisees are separatists. Now, it's easy for us in hindsight to condemn the Jews and to condemn the Pharisees, but you got to remember, we, we have witnessed the resurrection. We have witnessed the ascension. We have the Holy Spirit revealing truth to us. We have the next 27 books of the Bible called the New Testament, which explain God's mysterious ways of the world. And so I pointed out last week that the disciple, as I pointed out last week, the disciples and John the Baptist were often very confused about Jesus. They don't understand his actions until after the resurrection, of course, John wasn't around to see all them. Paul, as we discovered in Colossians last Wednesday, uses the term mystery to describe the unfolding plan of God's redemption, which was revealed through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we're actually told in Ephesians the angels themselves are looking into this mystery. So all that to say, before the cross and the resurrection and the unraveling of the mystery, right? You've got to be a little bit sympathetic with these people. They don't fully understand what's going on here with Jesus. Now, I'm not excusing the Pharisees, but I do, I do want to seek to understand their vantage point. Their problem actually is rooted, are you ready for this, in their high view of God. That's their problem. They have a very high view of God. And so should we. Right? So friends, if you had only the Old Testament, where God thundered warnings off the roof of Sinai not to approach His dreadful presence, where God forbade even Moses from looking on His face, where God struck a man dead for touching the ark, where God's presence filled the temple barring access to even Solomon, if that's what you have, that's your Scripture. Would you have guessed that the transcendent, ineffable, infinite, all-powerful Creator would have revealed Himself in the face of a mere mortal? Would you have guessed that? Or was that a mystery? If you think the Incarnation is easy, then I suggest to you that you have a low view of God. We've all read of the suffering servant, and we like to condemn the Jews for not understanding Isaiah, but that servant numbered himself with transgressors, and that almost sounds blasphemous. Can I really ascribe that to God? That servant is so ugly and revolting, we turn our faces away from him in utter horror. Can that really be Yahweh, the very essence of beauty and perfection? Who would have guessed that God and the person of Jesus Christ in the words of Paul would be made sin for us? Surely the Jews misunderstood Jesus, but not because they had a low view of God. They had an extremely high view of God. All right? You follow that? And if you want to be effective in evangelizing Jews or even Muslims, it's really crucial that you understand this distinction. Judaism... Christianity and Islam are the world's three great monotheistic religions. 
But Christianity, friends, is a different species of monotheism. It, it's, it, it's Trinitarian monotheism. Neither Judaism nor Islam are Trinitarian religions. Neither accept the incarnation of God in human flesh. The Jews, the Muslims, do not accept the incarnation of God in human flesh. And if you ask why, as I asked a Muslim recently, he was very honest with me, they will tell you. We have a high view of God. They believe that God is so high, so transcendent, so categorically different from us, so holy that He cannot possibly become human. God puts a perimeter around Mount Sinai and forbids anyone from touching the hem of the mountain lest he be struck dead in a moment. So who would have guessed that you can touch the hem of his garment and live? When God's terrible presence fills the tabernacle, Moses had to leave. So who would have guessed that God would tabernacle among us? That's the word in John 1 verse 14. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Wait a minute, you can't go in the tabernacle. He tabernacled among us? The God of the Old Testament is utterly holy, separated from His fallen creation. His presence just slays the unrighteous. The Jews had a very high view of God, and friends, so should we, because we read the same Old Testament. So, where do the Jews go wrong? The Jews actually had a theological problem. And it's the same problem that is at the heart of Islamic theology, and dare I say, right, this, is, this is where I don't want to trouble anybody unnecessarily, but in my estimation, this is my opinion, this problem also turns up in fundamentalist theology. It turns up in conservative theology very often. And probably some, I, I don't want to make too fine a distinction between evangelicals and fundamentalists, but it does turn up in conservative theology. And that problem concerns an attempt to make God's holiness, God's holiness, His central defining attribute. And this, this is the part I really had to check out with my theologian friend, all right? Isn't God's holiness His central defining attribute? I was indeed taught this view my whole life. God's holiness is His central attribute. It's His central identity. God's holiness is often said to be the attribute that just holds all the others together. Now, it is true that God's holiness, His uniqueness in that sense, renders His attributes categorically different than any other being. So God's love is infinitely greater than anyone's el- anyone else's, right? God's holy love is infinitely greater than anyone else's. God's mercy is categorically greater. God's power is infinite. God's holy power is infinite. Ours is finite. It's derivative, right? But here's where the confusion begins to set in. The Pharisees slip into equating God's holiness with God's separatedness. Holiness, separateness. Holiness and separatedness become virtually synonymous terms. They're interchangeable. Holy, separate, one the same. So here's how the thinking goes. God's holiness defines Him. It's His central attribute. Therefore, God's separateness is His most defining characteristic. Therefore, to be like God is to make separation the defining characteristic of Christianity. 
or Judaism or Islam. The Pharisees were the preeminent separatists of Jesus' day. And they believed that through separation, separation, distance from everybody else, they could become more like God. And to achieve this separateness, they drew up very detailed laws and standards. They created a whole religious culture, a very delicate ecosystem in which departing from any one law is like introducing a predatory species. The whole thing is going to come unraveled. They live in this kind of theological biosphere in which if you let any oxygen in from the outside, you're going to contaminate the whole thing, right? If they were to make any cultural change or allow any difference of preference, their whole faith would just become contaminated. And so what you have to do is just keep all the laws. Tithe your mint and your dill and your cumin. Right? Be very exact about it. Don't take a step too far on the Sabbath. That's, that's unholy. Don't disrupt the culture. And if you do, you've just compromised God. You've compromised His holiness, His identity, His separateness. So what do you do with a rabbi who shows up and who befriends sinners and deliberately heals on the Sabbath and dines with publicans and then turns around and claims to be one with God? I mean, what do you do with that guy? Separatist must, separation must be maintained at all costs. And that's because the holiness of God is at stake. So stone the rabbi. Nail him to a cross. Right? That's how the thinking proceeds. But I do have a question. Before God created the world, from whom was he separated? If we make holiness God's defining attribute, and holiness is separation from his fallen creation, he said again, if we make holiness God's defining attribute, and holiness is separation from his fallen creation, was God then separated from his fallen creation before there was a creation? What exactly was he separated from? If God is permanently and eternally whole in the sense of separated, then he must always have something to separate from. And friends, that leads right into the Gnostic heresy. The Gnostic heresy views God as pure spirit up there in the heavens, permanently separated from the material world. And once you've adopted that Gnostic posture, the doctrine of the Incarnation crumbles. It's exactly what happened in the early church with the Gnostic threat. The doctrine of the Incarnation just begins to fall apart because God cannot contaminate Himself with humanity down there. He's got, he's got to maintain this, this distinct posture of separateness. Further, friends, if we make holiness God's central defining attribute, we imply that God has in some sense always separated from evil. But if that's true, wouldn't that make evil as old as God? Wouldn't evil have to be as old as God if God is always separated from evil? And again, that's just Gnosticism. In eternity past, God was not separated from anyone. God's identity was not bound up in a separation from evil. There was no evil to separate from. God's eternal identity was not defined by His distance from creation. That would make creation as old as God. Coeval with God is the word theologians use. That's a term that means of the same age or duration. Well then, where is God's identity bound up? God's identity is bound up in His Trinitarian relationship 
of Father, Son, and Spirit. And theologians refer to this as God's mutual co-inherence. God's mutual co-inherence. This is the idea that three of them are all facing each other in love. And Jesus picks up on that relationship at the end of verse 38. Look at the text. The Father is in me, and I am in the Father. That was true in the first century. And it was true from eternity past. Jesus is one with the Father. That's what the Jews are missing. When we arrive at John 14, Jesus will formally introduce to us the Holy Spirit. And guess what? He too is part of that Trinitarian mutual co-inherence. Father, Son, and Spirit. Now friends, what lies the center of that relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? What lies the center of their interpersonal relationship from all eternity? It's not separatedness. Right? It's not God separating from God. What lies at the center is, in fact, perfect love. That's the center of who God is. Holy love, but love. It was that perfect love at the heart of God's Trinitarian identity that actually incarnated one member of that Trinity into human history to rescue us from our sin, from our misery, from our destruction. And that's what these separated Pharisees kept missing in their quest for holiness. That's what they're missing. They could not comprehend an eternal Trinitarian love of God that reached out and brought a fallen creation into their embrace through the Incarnation. And friends, this is why I think we really need a robust theology of the Incarnation. We really need a right theology of the Incarnation to really understand God. So yes, let me be clear. The Old Testament is very clear. God is holy. God is separate from sin. He's unapproachable. He's lethal in His presence. He is separate from His fallen creation. But when you absolutize God's separateness, you become a Pharisee who cannot embrace the Incarnation when it's standing right there in your presence. He's opening blind eyes and you can't embrace Him. When you absolutize God's presence, or God's separateness rather, you, you can easily embrace Islam. You reject the incarnation of God hanging on a cross. And friends, even as a believer, when you absolutize God's holiness, you can, you can embrace a kind of Christian Phariseeism, fastidiously keeping all the rules which you set for yourself and failing to recognize your need for grace and the need to show that grace to others. When you absolutize God's separateness, even as a Christian, you, you can very easily slip into pride. I, I'm better than everybody else. Look at, my, look at my standards. Or into a legalistic approach to sanctification that holds everybody to your standards, and if you don't meet my standards, right, well then, you know, you're, you're, just, you're disrupting that little biosphere, that little ecosystem, right? You're different on me at this point. Well, then you're, you've compromised God. Right? You can insist on tithing your mint and your dill and your cumin, and Jesus will come along and say to you, that's fine, but you have omitted the weightier matters of the law like justice, like mercy, like faithfulness. And friends, when you insist on in your personal holiness and start measuring everybody else against your personal standards and preferences, you can very easily wound the church of God. And you can very easily wound new believers. And you can very easily divide the church of God by, by pressing your separatism, which is scriptural, by the way. 
There's a place for it, but you can press that so far that you go well beyond the Scripture. Right. Now, I probably need like two or three more sermons to really flesh all that out. I don't know. But I'm done, actually. My, my last line here is, God is love. All right, God is love. All right, is that, is that, you, know, you okay with this? We understand this. And for some of you, you're like, what is he talking about? It's because you didn't grow up in the culture I grew up in, right? And I, I'm not, I'm not hostile to the culture I grew up in at all, but no cult, no Christian culture is perfect. And, you know, years from now, our, our children are going to come along and they're going to, they're going to correct our mistakes, right? They're going to come along and they're going to say, you know, our parents, this is what they did at UBC. And we're going to get it right this time. We're going to get it right this time. And then they'll make their own mistakes. All right. Well, I need to make an announcement. Let's pray first, and then I'll make an announcement. Father, thank you so much for this text. Help us to really appreciate the Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, Lord, to embrace Him fully. Thank you, Lord, for the work that He did on the cross. We thank you, Lord, that He did indeed overcome our sin. We thank you for the joy that we have in knowing Him, and help us, Lord, to be ever mindful, Lord, of introducing him to others, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Would you all take just a moment and open to Psalm 82. Psalm 82. I was reflecting the psalm because this is the very psalm that uh, Jesus quoted in our text this morning where he calls the people gods. That's in verse 6. I said you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Verse 1, God has taken His place in the divine council in the midst of the gods, these Jewish gods. But God is not very happy with His people. And why is He not very happy with His people? Well, because His people were failing to live out a holy lifestyle. And what might that look like? Well, look at verse 3. The text says, Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Here's an indication of a truly holy lifestyle, giving justice to the fatherless. Would you turn now to James 1 and verse 27? James 1 and verse 27. James 1 and verse 27. James writes in the New Testament, religion that is pure and undefiled before God. You want, you want to live a holy lifestyle? What does that look like? Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And when you do that, you're keeping yourself unstained from the world. Where am I going with this? Well, I want to announce today that we have a family in our church that is pursuing an adoption. And we are really, really thrilled about this. They don't know what I'm going to say. But uh, Stephen and Maria Chen, the Lord has really laid it in their heart to pursue an adoption, and they've been at this for a very long time, and uh, they've been very passionate about this. In fact, Maria wanted to do this long before she even got married, and uh, we're just really, really thrilled about this. And uh, our elders have talked through this, and we are very, very supportive of them. If you look at the word fatherless in the Old Testament, it comes up again and again and again. It uh, appears some 11 times in the book of Deuteronomy alone. Isaiah tells the people, when you amend your ways and start following the Lord, you're going to start caring for the fatherless again. One of the reasons Israel goes into captivity is their failure to take care of the orphans. 
And so the Chen's have really taken this to heart, and they've looked at the text on this, and they really feel like the Lord has led them in this direction. I wish I could just sort of share their whole story with you, and maybe at some point they'll be able to. But uh, we are just really, really thrilled by this step in their life. And we realize that others in the church have done this sort of thing before, but we feel like maybe at this point in the life of the church that maybe we can get behind this sort of thing and and uh, help help the Chen's with this, and maybe this will be a catalyst for others in the church to do the same thing. I See the Bates over here, and the Bates are my heroes. The Bates are my adoption heroes. They've done it four times, and uh, it's just amazing what they've done. So anyways, if, if you want to, somebody can go for five, all right? But anyway, uh, the Chens are doing this. The Chens are doing this, and we're just thrilled. Uh, they are well into the process, but as you know, adoption is very, very expensive. And so we got to the end of last year, and we realized we had a lot of blessings money, a whole lot of money that came in last year, well over budget. As our elders talked about that money, we thought, you know what, we, we probably should look around and find some ways that we can really help people and be a blessing to them. And so Thursday night at our elders' meeting, we discussed this, and we, we are uh, recommending to the church that uh, we take a vote in a couple weeks, and that is to give the Chens $5,000 uh, to help them on this adoption journey and to complete that adoption journey. And that's not nearly enough, all right? It's very, very expensive. Not nearly enough, but to give them $5,000 out of our blessings money from last year. So we're going to ask you to think about that, and we'll take a vote on that in a couple of weeks. In addition, the elders have approved that any monies that come in from our congregation to the Chins directly can go to the Chins. And so if you would like to give to them, and you'd like to give it through the church and get your tax write-off, we are approving that. All right, you're welcome to give to them directly. You're more than welcome to do that. But if you would like that to be funneled to the church for your tax write-off, uh, that is fine too. Anything, anything the church approves, actually, uh, we can. I, in fact, I called Brother Mike Donovan last night just to make sure we're doing everything right on this. Uh, but we can do that. So if you would like to get behind this and uh, give an addition to the five thousand, we we welcome you to do that. And uh, I, at some point, they may want to give us a number. I don't know. That's up to them. But uh, let me just tell you, it's a whole lot more than $5,000, all right? It's a whole lot of money. It's a, it's, a, it's a step of faith for them to go down this road, and they're well into the process. So we'll say more about that, but I just am so, so thrilled and so encouraged by this. And I've written them recommendation letters, and I'm, I'm 100% behind this, and I hope you will be too. I mean, I know they're back there. They're embarrassed uh, by all this. I know they're embarrassed, all right? They also have a website, and uh, we'll try to put a link to that website online or, or through the email this week so you can see their website. And if you'd like to give to their website, you can. And I know it's just it's the hardest thing to go out and try to raise money, but this is a good, good thing. And we are their church family, and we, we really believe that this is the sort of thing that, that, that the Pharisees missed, right? Here's the Pharisee. He's over there with his scalpel, and he's taking out his 10% tithe, right? I, I've got my cumin here. I'm tithing it. I got my little dill here, and I'm tithing my 10%. And there's, there's the widow back here, right? And she's groveling in the street. And here's the orphan back here with no parents. And Jesus is saying, you, you forgot the weightier matters. You know, you can tithe your mint all day long if you want, but what about the important thing? What about the orphan back here? All right, so that's why we're doing this. We really believe this is a way to express uh, the character of God and caring for the fatherless. All right. So feel free to talk to Chins about that. We'll take a vote in a couple weeks on that $5,000. But in the meantime, any money that you want to give through the offering and you just want to designate that Chin family or Chin adoption, something like that, we'll make sure that money gets to the right place. Okay? And then the rest of you, if you want to consider adoption, 
right? It's, it's not for everybody, but here's a way that you can all be involved at least with the Chin family. Okay, sorry to go along, but where's, where's, where's Tim? Okay.